welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from On the Media, Counterspin, Rachel Maddow, The Young Turks, Tom Hartman, and Lachaud. This week, the dead face of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was enlarged and mounted in a gold frame by the Iraqi government, and the media displayed it like the trophy it was. NBC's Brian Williams. Yeah, American children will see it during the dinner hour and ask who that is and, and why that man is in that state. It'll be shown around the world. It'll be shown notably around the Arab world. It was another Iraq mission accomplished. The ideology of terror has lost one of its most visible and aggressive leaders. Zarqawi's death is a severe blow to al-Qaeda. But how severe is it? For three years, the Bush administration has portrayed Zarqawi as the evil nexus between al-Qaeda and the Iraqi insurgency. But other experts claim his role was inflated, both by the White House and by Zarqawi himself. It seems to have been in both their interests to enlarge the image of this small-time Jordanian crook turned jihadist, turned terror mastermind. The question now is what image will survive him and how it will affect the war on terror. Bruce Hoffman holds the RAND Corporate Chair in Counterterrorism and Counterinsurgency and is editor-in-chief of the journal Studies in Conflict and Terrorism. He says Zarqawi would be thrilled with the coverage this week, given that three years ago he was a complete unknown. And in a relatively short span of time, I think abetted by very clever use of 21st century media, uh, the internet in particular, digital photography as well, that he was able to catapult to a, an infamous notoriety, but a notoriety where the Zarqawi brand was as well known as that of bin Laden and al-Qaeda. And I think probably today that he would take tremendous satisfaction as many people go online, laud him, praise him, and promise and pledge to avenge his death and to carry on the struggle. Now, isn't the idea of the gilt-edged framed death portrait the very way that the Islamicist faithful lionize dead martyrs? Yes, exactly. And I believe that was always Sarkawi's goal, is that he went to Iraq to become a martyr. And I think he understood that his martyrdom would ensure that he would have as great, if not greater, resonance in death as he has had in life. Otherwise, he would have been content to direct the insurgency from afar, but instead he was fighting in the front lines. So I could understand how the U.S. military might have a tin ear for this sort of imagery, but how in the world could the Iraqi military have, assuming this is a mistake, made such a mistake? The highest imperative, of course, was to depict Zarqawi's death and to demonstrate to other Iraqis that their most homicidal enemy was dead and that this was a success of the security forces that are out to serve the people and protect the people. And I suspect in the rush to demonstrate that attention may not have been paid to how his image conceivably could be interpreted or even used by his allies or active or even would-be supporters. Now, as treacherous and deadly as he was, Zarqawi also was quite useful for the administration. The Washington Post reported a couple of months back, uncovering some documents suggesting that U.S. strategy was to intentionally overstates Zarqawi's role, presumably because he was a foreigner, a Jordanian, who operated under what he called al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, which lent credibility to the long-since discredited uh, idea still clung to by the White House that Saddam Hussein was in league with al-Qaeda. 
With him out of the picture, won't it be harder for the administration to explain the violence and the chaos in Iraq? Sarkawi, I think, uh, often remained one step ahead of his opponents in that in recent months he deliberately refashioned his al-Qaeda organization in Iraq to be predominantly Iraqi. In fact, upwards of 90% of its members were Iraqi. In stark contrast to three years ago, when probably the reverse percentage was foreign fighters to Iraqis. And in that sense, I think Zarqawi will leave a lasting legacy of having created, really, not quite single-handedly, but pretty much, an Iraqi domestic jihadi constituency. That even without him, you have Iraqis who were predominantly secular, now have been animated by his religious call and will carry on fighting even without the figurehead. It's clear that Zarqawi positioned himself as a great religious warrior, and the U.S. administration portrayed him as a kind of evil mastermind. In the end, who do you think has won the PR war here? Unfortunately, I suspect it's Zarqawi, because I think his fundamental message is, firstly, thug makes good, that you two can have a seismic effect on, indeed, history by resorting to acts of uh, unmitigated violence and terrorism. I think he also, in a sense, comes ahead in the PR struggle because he demonstrated, especially with the the grotesque beheading of Nicholas Berg uh, two years ago, that he can bypass the traditional media, that terrorists don't necessarily need the regular television, radio, or newspapers. But rather, even when we hesitate to broadcast the most heinous scenes of violence, he understood that by using the internet, you can create a buzz, that you can still have that enormous power of horror and shock that terrorism seeks to achieve. And in that sense, I think he is one of the figures that has made the internet, particularly in the 21st century, uh, the means of communication par excellence or favored by terrorists and insurgents everywhere. Well, on that depressing note, Bruce, uh, thank you very much. You're very welcome, Bob. Bruce Hoffman is author of the revised and expanded Inside Terrorism, recently republished by the Columbia University Press. was a sensational story when it broke in Canada's National Post on May 19th and ran the following day in the New York Post. According to the prominent Iranian-born neoconservative Amir Tahiri, Iran had passed a law that would force non-Muslims to wear color-coded insignia in order to identify them in public. Yellow for Jews, red for Christians, and blue for Zoroastrians. Both papers featured to Harry's shocking column, along with news stories under headlines like one in the New York Post that read, Fourth Reich, Iran Law Labels Jews. The National Post report concluded with the line, Is Iran turning into the new Nazi Germany? Share your opinion online at nationalpost.com. Well, the story wasn't true, as it turns out. It was debunked when Associated Press and others published the actual text of the law. But not before the U.S. State Department, Iranian exiles, and Jewish groups had condemned Iran based on the falsehood. 
To some, the hoax suggested that a disinformation campaign against Iran is underway. Middle East scholar Juan Cole told Jim Loeb of Interpress Service that the story was typical of black psychological operations campaigns. A former U.S. intelligence official described the story to Loeb as a real sign of a disinformation operation. As Loeb reported, Tahiri is a member of the neoconservative PR firm Benador Associates, along with other prominent neoconservatives, including Richard Pearl, David Frum, and Michael Ledeen. To its credit, after the story was exposed as a fraud, the National Post quickly retracted it. But Rupert Murdoch's New York Post told Counterspin they were sticking by the story. Guess their standards are different. You might remember that one of the one of the things we reported on all morning was that Al Qaeda in Iraq posted a statement online that confirmed Zarqawi's death and said that it was you know they presented it as good news he's been martyred. Uh, that statement was signed by Abu Abdul Rahman Al Iraqi. Remember I said that name a bunch of times yesterday on the show. When the news started coming out about how they caught Zarqawi, how they found him, the New York Times and other sources said that guy Abu Abdul Rahman Al Iraqi was one of the ways they found Zarqawi. They said they had been following that guy, Rahman, until he met with Zarqawi, and that's when the U.S. dropped its bombs. Those sources also said that Rahman was killed alongside Zarqawi. So it was Zarqawi, Rahman, two other guys, a woman, and a child. That's what they said. So then here's my question. How can the guy have died alongside Zarqawi and then signed the al-Qaeda statement that announced Zarqawi's death? That seems like two things that are hard to do if you're in the same body. Uh, two possibilities, it seems to me. Either Rahman, this guy, did not die alongside Zarqawi, despite what the U.S. military announced. Uh, that would lend some credence to the idea that, that he's going to be now the new head of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Either that or the al-Qaeda statement um, was BS and they, they put somebody else's name on it. Or another possibility is that there's two people that are both called Abu Abdul Rahman al-Iraqi. It's not inconceivable, right? These guys make up names. Uh, one of them, if there are two people that have the same name, you could have one guy that is Zarqawi's spiritual advisor who died with him and another guy who's an, another al-Qaeda in Iraq guy. That is a, a detail that is being glossed over right now by different news reports, and it'll be interesting to find out if this uh, guy who signed the al-Qaeda statement really is uh, still alive and potentially now going to take over leadership of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, you may also remember that there is a $25 million bounty on Zarqawi's head, same as Osama bin Laden. Uh, the Iraqi prime minister said yesterday that that $25 million bounty will be paid. He said, quote, we will meet our promise. The question, of course, is who gets the $25 million bucks? Lots of press today about where uh, the tip came from that led the U.S. to Zarqawi. Uh, again, the New York Times reporting that they were following this spiritual advisor guy, Rahman, right? Uh, and unnamed Pentagon officials and a Pentagon press release and the national security advisor in Iraq are then all quoted saying that they got a tip 
from somebody inside Zarqawi's organization. They got a tip from somebody inside al-Qaeda. Uh, here's George Casey speaking to that yesterday. Tips and intelligence from Iraqi senior leaders from his network led our forces to Zarqawi and some of his associates. Senior leaders from his network, they're saying they got a tip on where Zarqawi was that allowed them to bomb him because they got a tip from inside Zarqawi's organization. Again, there are two possible interpretations of this for me. Uh, number one, this could be really, really good news about improvements uh, in our counterterrorism intelligence capacity. You know, we've been hearing for years from all the counterterrorism experts that our biggest weakness in fighting Islamic extremists is our supposed inability to infiltrate these groups, to infiltrate al Qaeda, to infiltrate other terrorist cells, that we can get informants inside lots of different groups that the U.S. sees as enemies. But we haven't been good at doing that with the Islamist extremists. If that now has changed and we really have somebody inside al Qaeda in Iraq, that would be great. So that that would be good news. One other possibility uh, is that the uh, they got the tip, but they got the tip from somebody who wasn't working for us. They got the tip from somebody inside Al Qaeda in Iraq, but it wasn't an infiltrator. It wasn't somebody who we flipped or somebody who we got to go in there and and, and be basically a double agent. It's possible that they, we got that tip about Zarqawi from somebody who was legitimately in Al Qaeda an al-Qaeda member in Zarqawi's organization who ratted him out because of a power struggle. I mean, don't forget, even though nobody else is covering it, don't forget that the Pentagon has been running a multi-million dollar propaganda campaign to exaggerate the importance of the dead guy, of Zarqawi. They've been trying to make him seem more important than he is, and they have admitted to that big propaganda campaign. Now that this guy is dead... They've got to climb down from that propaganda campaign. They've got to actually take a very different tack. That propaganda campaign made him seem more important than he is. Now that he's dead, they're going to need to reduce expectations that his death is just going to make all the violence go away and make Iraq, you know, like Missouri. And they have to deal with the fact that even though they made him out to be the kingpin in al-Qaeda in Iraq... He might have just been one guy among many in al-Qaeda in Iraq. He might have been one guy who annoyed everybody else by making videotapes and inflating his own sense of importance. He might have been one guy caught in a power struggle inside this organization who got ratted out to the Americans in order to get him out of the way. I, for one, am very happy that they got him. I also have no illusions this means that Iraq is going to get any less deadly, and it's an important distinction. nothing to do words in the dirt and watch the water roll down. Phantom kisses buzzing like the insects Beads of sweat dripping down on the rent shack My candy land melted down to syrup While I watch the water roll down Let's have some fun If you want to have some fun, you know what you do? You bring Greg Palst into this house you bring him into the studio and you start to go nuts. You know what? Uh, uh, other shows won't have Greg Palestine. They won't do it because they're not. They're, they're, they're too scared. Not us. <laughs> We're not worried about the national security letters. We're not worried about getting gagged. So here's Greg Palestine. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, that, and next time we'll be the Young Turks wing at Guantanamo. So you, you know <laughs> now 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 you've crossed the line. All right. For, I would be proud to be jailed at Guantanamo yeah. and eat uh, Duncan Hines's uh, chicken. Look good in a <laughs> lemon chicken. <laughs> Go ahead. All right. Uh, Greg is a journalist. 
uh, and uh, he mainly operates out of uh, uh, England. That's right. Uh, but and, I, well, yeah, I work for. I'm an investigative reporter for BBC Television, and 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 actually, you know. Yeah, and I have to work out of England because investigative reporting is, you know, illegal under Patriot Act three in America. So I've got to so work talk out to of me accent. about that. You're not English. I hear the accent. You're from New York. Not, don't have that Henry Higgins. No. So, so why? No, actually, you, out of L.A. But go ahead. Uh, oh, okay. Do, why did you run away to uh, to England? I mean, I was in exile. I was pushed. Do you, do you hate America? Is that what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, I was. In, I'm in exile. No, it's just that that uh, that the, the network executives. You know, I mean, God forbid you should actually do some investigative reporting, mainly because of what you'll find. I mean, you know, uh, and you know, you know why. I mean, you look at that, um, you know, that CBS eyeball. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really, there. it's not an eyeball. It's a pimple on the corporate rectum of Viacom. <laughs> and, you know, so they're not going to, you know, Viacom, General, General Electric, all these guys, they're, they're not going to have investigative reporting. So I have to do that from uh, basically a not-profit uh, station, which well, is BBC uh, Television. You know, uh, it was uh, earlier uh, this month uh, in May when, I believe, when Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez said that uh, among the things they would have to consider is they are concerned about, they're obviously concerned about whistleblowers and want to prosecute whistleblowers. He said that he wouldn't, uh, that it may come the time that the, that reporters themselves would be prosecuted. The, the people from the New York Times who uh, who broke, the, you know, James Risen, who broke the NSA, a warrantless spying story, and the, the boss Boston Globe reporters who broke the bushel break seven. Do you think that like, Brian Williams is in danger here? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but but this is yeah, a so Attorney right. General who's sort of uh, blustering and saying, "Hey, look, the Espionage Act, I think of 1918, that maybe we'll have to arrest reporters." It, it, do you feel a, a a a chill as an investigative reporter? Feel a chill? I'm not allowed to report here before Gonzalez showed up. I mean, it didn't you know? It didn't really matter. I mean, when I say I'm not allowed, I mean you have to understand. Okay, uh, and one of the reasons actually I wrote our Madhouse, my new book. Uh, is that these are the reports that you're literally not allowed to see in the USA. You go to gregpalace.com, you'll see the BBC reports that, and just so you know, ABC Television has an agreement to run, to air my investigative reports for free, and they still ain't doing it. I mean, the price is too high, because the political price is too high. All right, so first of all, those who, a lot of you already know Greg Palace's work. He is a New York Times bestseller, author of Best Democracy Money Can Buy, and now he's written Our Madhouse, Who's Afraid of Osama Wolf, China Floats Bush Sinks, The Scheme to Steal 08, No Child's uh, Behind Left, and other dispatches from the front lines of the class war. It's right here. Uh, obviously, people are looking to buy that. That's yeah. what's happening. I got it. So, uh, Greg... First, before we get on to some of the topics in the book, yeah. just real quick, when you say you're not allowed to report it, not it's, not, it's not that it's illegal, it's that ABC, CBS, etc. are afraid to report it because of the ramifications it'll have for, yeah. you think, the yeah. corporate bottom line. No kidding. Okay. I mean, I just wanna make I that mean in fact, i got to tell you that when I ran the report, top of the BBC Nightly News, so it went all over the world, this is the world's number one news network. And I ran a report saying that the Bush administration had killed off the FBI investigations of the bin Laden family before September 11th. It's in the book because we had the documents from the FBI. We got the insiders. Talk to me about and, that. And Let's do that one first. Okay. okay. So wh- who ordered the investigation stopped and what documents do you have to prove that? Okay. In, like you'll see in the book, we have a document that's marked secret. I mean, it's really cool. <laughs> you know, it's like, you like this. It's really cool doing this. Stuff. Secret, you know, confidential. says 199I, which means national security document. And it says, you know, that actually it's interesting because what the document says is that you can now begin going back to the investigation of the bin Laden family in the United States. Uh, but it's dated September 13th, 2001. 
Okay. Now, but, but how do you know that that was just not a matter of neglect as opposed to somebody saying stop the investigation? Okay, so then we talked to the insiders. And it was not, by the way, just the bin Laden family. It came back the same thing. And by the way, this is not, just so you know, I don't have like some evidence that George Bush knew about the September 11th attack in advance and, you know, didn't tell us about it. Because, you know, our. My guess is you would have written the book about that if yeah, you I mean, had that. Uh, yeah, if I had it, it would have been, that would have been quite a bestseller. But it would have been, you know, I mean, if I had that information. Uh, yeah, I'd report it. But what we had was what they weren't seeing, not what they knew, but what they didn't know. In fact, you know, our rule at BBC, you accuse George Bush of knowing anything, you got to have evidence. And, mm-hmm. you know, we don't <laughs> have much evidence of that. You got that. Good. Now, um, but the thing is, in this case, we had insiders say, look, you cannot, and not only FBI, but the CIA, DIA, you cannot investigate the Saudi money connections. He's all about the money connection to Al-Qaeda. It's not what Al-Qaeda is up to. It's like it, because it goes back to the Saudis, to the Saudi princes, etc. Do you have documents of them saying you cannot investigate it? We have the insiders who told us you couldn't investigate. And then what we asked, when I asked them, the most interesting thing, what I have in the book, for example, is something I call the con job, where I said, well, come on. What you have to tell me what specific investigations were killed off? And the guy said, Khan Laboratories. And this was back in November of 2001. He said, the information is that Khan Labs. What are they? Is, is now they were a laboratory in Pakistan. That was a guy named um, A. Oh, A. Q. Khan. I was like, right. I, I, our, our old friend. friend a. And actually, I didn't know when they said Khan Laboratories. I was thinking Connecticut right, Laboratories. That's, that's, that's what I was right, thinking. Right. I didn't know. And then Lieberman's I had, involved. And then I had the. Oh, so you uh, don't mean A. Q. Khan. You mean, you mean uh, And I was thinking my my BBC producer. I was thinking Connecticut Laboratories. And he's you know, you know, listen, schmuck. Yeah, right. Khan Labs of Pakistan. And what they're talking about is investigating this guy selling fissionable material to Libya and North Korea in 2004. Khan gets outed right. by the way by Gaddafi, who's no, now is our buddy. But just a little joke. He says, oh, "By the way, I got I got you. Wonder where I got all this nuclear junk from, Mr. Khan in Pakistan." Bush comes out and holds a press conference and says, "I'm shocked. I can't believe we are stunned and we are putting a stop. To this. this is the guy who stopped the investigation in 2001. Why did he stop the investigation? Because of the information we have is that where did Pakistan get the money for this program?" Now they got they were selling this junk to uh, Pakistan, North Korea. a fabulously rich country. Right, right. Yeah. So where are they getting it? It turned out it was Saudi Arabia, which had moved money, trying to create an Islamic bomb, having Saddam Hussein create a bomb. To when he went when he went renegade, they moved the money to Pakistan, and that's what the FBI. That's what and that's we what are trying to investigate. And we we didn't want that investigated simply because Saudi Arabia is an ally. At pa- Pakistan is well, they're kind an, ally of an ally to whom? To Bush, to the Bush family. But it also would, by the way, it also would have shown that as you that that when. Saddam Hussein went renegade that A.Q. Khan had nothing more to do with Saddam Hussein. <laughs> so, I mean, it was actually, yeah. in a bizarre way, evidence that Saddam Hussein was not involved in collecting well, yeah, visible materials I mean, anymore. He was, out, right. he, he was out of the picture. It but it money. is possible, uh, and we're talking to Greg uh, mm-hmm. Palast. He is the sure. uh, author of the new book, Armed Madhouse. It is possible that it's not just that Bush was making money out of it, that there was no. a geopolitical reason behind why big, we wanted to support yeah. Saudi Arabia. Now you're getting geopolitics. I love that word. Uh, of course. And, Who and, doesn't? And, right, yeah. That's why I throw it around. Yeah. We, you know, it's, it's the old pickup line. Hey, geopolitics. <laughs> but the, you want to talk geopolitics, baby? <laughs> that never fails. Every time. <laughs> so what happens, especially if it's AQ Khan you're talking to, um, and you've got the cash. Okay. Think 
you know, yes, it's true. I, in fact, I've written a lot about the, you know, the Bush bin Laden family financial connections, Saudi financial connections. But, you know, but that's just club stuff. That's everyone's in on the take on that. The geopolitics is this, is that you see George Bush riding around in his golf cart in uh, the Crawford Ranch with King Abdullah. Right. It's, it's not because he needs Abdullah's oil. Abdullah can't drink this stuff, you know. So why are we messing around with this dictator in a, in a bathrobe and a crown? Okay, he has to sell us the oil. The answer is, is that he gives us as well the oil dollars, so that you know, basically three bucks a gallon, three sixty or whatever in, uh, out here um, a gallon. The big oil takes a big slice. That's in the book. Um, Abdullah takes a slice, so the the Emirates take a slice, and and yet most of the money actually does return back to the United States in the form of the purchase of of uh, treasury bills and bonds. They're basically lending the money back to George to fund his oil wars, his deficits, his, the tax cuts for the rich. Our president has run up a $2 trillion increase in the national debt entirely funded by foreign borrowing. In other words, they lend us back the, the petrodollars, and we lend them the 82nd Airborne. Right. I, I understand that completely. That's the geopolitics. Right. But so it's not – that is the geopolitics. So it's not necessarily that, hey, George Bush is looking to make $10 million yeah. as opposed to $5 million. Yeah, that's a tip. You know. Okay. Right. I got you. And we're going to it. Story, the, the hottest story, the one that the Bush administration is flogging like crazy, is uh, El Zarqawi uh, was uh, terminated. He died uh, overnight or yesterday in, in Iraq as a result of U.S. bombing missions. And here's what I, you know, I find interesting about this. Back in 2004, according to the Washington Post, a U.S. military briefing said, and I quote, this is a headline, villainize Zarqawi, leverage xenophobia response. This is from a, a report by Reuters published April 10th, 2006, quoting the Washington Post in 2004. And in April of 2006, Reuters wrote, the U.S. military is conducting a propaganda campaign to overstate the threat to, the st- the threat to stability posed by the al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zarqawi in Iraq, the Washington Post reported on Monday. So, some senior military intelligence officers believe the importance of the Jordanian-born Abu Musab al-Jarqawi may have been exaggerated, citing military documents and officers familiar with the program. According to the article, current D- Colonel Derek Harvey, who served as a military intelligence officer in Iraq, told a U.S. Army meeting last summer, quote, Our own focus on Zarqawi has enlarged his caricature, if you will, made him more important than he really is. The long-term threat is not Zarqawi or religious extremists, but these former regime types and their friends, Harvey said in the transcript of a meeting at Fort Leavenworth, Texas. I'm telling you, what this is all about is this this is what anybody who has ever written fiction or paid attention to the storylines and plot lines of novels or, or movies knows. I've, I've written seven or eight novels, and, and th- three of them have been turned into screenplays. Two of them were optioned. Um, I can and, and I've been through a you know, bunch of workshops, read a lot of books on this, and actually taught how to write fiction. And I can tell you, the, the first thing you learn 
is that your hero can only be a hero if there's a villain, and that the that the heroicness of your hero, the heroism of your of your hero, will be defined by the villainy of your villain. When DC comic books came up with Superman, a guy who can jump over tall buildings and see with X-ray vision and fly through the sky, it would have been the most boring comic book ever if they couldn't come up with Lex Luthor and Kryptonite. It just it just has to be. You have to you have to have an evil villain in order to have a superhero. Now George W. Bush, after the 2000 election, 2001, Americans are getting it. He wasn't legitimately elected. He didn't win the election. It was it was uh, September. He knew that in five weeks the Washington Post and the New York New York Times were going to report that he actually didn't win in Florida. And and to his great fortune. And some would say because of his great incompetence, or perhaps because he even decided not to follow up on some of the leads that he had. We know now that Judy Cooper could have broken this story. George Bush now had a villain in the form of Osama bin Laden. So he could become the Superman to Osama bin Laden as Lex Luthor. He had a Lex Luthor. Well, he blew that over the course of three years. Osama bin Laden still running around six foot four on six foot six on his camel with his dialysis machine. Bush can't find him, so he needed a new Lex Luthor. Uh, so you know, where do we get the Penguin? Where do we get the Joker? Ah, this is our Kawi guy. We'll get him. And I guarantee he's going to be crowing that he's now the king. If I was president, I'd get elected on Friday, assassinated on Saturday. Buried on Sunday, if I was president... American military officials in Baghdad often point to the relatively low number of attacks against British soldiers in southern Iraq as proof that much of the country is stable. Last month, at least 200 people were killed in Basra, almost all of them by militia violence. A week with British troops in the provinces south of Baghdad make it clear that Iraqis there are at the mercy of Shiite militia death squads and Iran-friendly clerics who have imposed an ever stricter code of de facto Islamic law. The city of Basra has largely come under the control of Shiite clerics who have banned alcohol sales. A woman without a headscarf is a rare sight. Record shops have been replaced with stores selling Quranic recordings. It's difficult to purchase chess or backgammon sets. The games are frowned upon by hardline religious leaders. Iraq's top Shiites acknowledge they want to set up a regional government in the south, but they insist that the provinces involved would remain loyal to the central government in Baghdad. But an Iran-friendly Shiite government in the south could have far-reaching effects on Iraq and the Persian Gulf region and on the strategic position of U.S. military forces in the country. Human rights in Iraq are being severely undermined by growing insecurity. Hey, join the club. Who doesn't have growing insecurity? You know? It's the 21st century. Violence and a breakdown of law and order caused by militias and criminal gangs. That's a report from the U.N. mission in Baghdad this week. The human rights update issued every two months by the U.N. assistance mission in Iraq cites soaring numbers of execution-style killings in Baghdad. Such slayings have increased during a surge of sectarian violence. Baghdad's main morgue issued 1,155 death certificates in April. I don't know what that number is supposed to mean. The count corroborated a statement by Iraqi President Talibani, who this month cited morgue figures and saying more than 1,000 people have been killed in Baghdad alone in April. The Shiite-controlled health ministry had denied the figure, saying morgue officials had accidentally given him the 
wrong tally. So they're arguing about who, how many people are killed. The Rights Mission also said the figures covered only slaying victims who had not been identified, which suggests the overall death toll in Baghdad has been far higher than any official figure so far made public. Execution-style killings have soared as high as a reported 70 a day in Baghdad. Police and the militias of Iraq's governing Shiite religious parties are suspected in many of the killings. International rights workers said that Shiite parties put pressure on medical authorities not to report the true death toll. Sunni Muslim groups have also been reported to hold summary trials and executions, the U.N. noted. The U.N. mission also called for urgent action on promoting the rule of law, saying the need was particularly urgent with respect to internal regulations and accountability systems. Police are run by the Interior Ministry, which is controlled by Shiite religious parties. The report said that the Interior Ministry, which has no legal authority to hold detainees for more than short periods, was holding 5,000 prisoners at the end of last month. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, in all the hoopla about a new uh, Iraqi government being named last week, one of the two key ministries not yet uh, filled with an an appointment for the person running it is the Interior Ministry. Just two, the Interior Ministry and the Defense Ministry, because those aren't important to a nation in shape that they're in. The new Iraq... More on the new Iraq. The coach of the Iraqi national tennis team and two of his players were shot dead in Baghdad for wearing shorts in a district where Islamic radicals have started to enforce Taliban-style law. We've brought the Taliban to Iraq. Hussein Ahmed Rashid was shot at close range with two of his players, according to a National Olympic Committee official. One of the players wearing shorts had left the car to drop off some items at a laundry. When he returned to the vehicle, gunmen in a gray car swerved and blocked the player's car. Three men in civilian clothes surrounded the car and ordered the passengers to get out. When they refused, one of the men produced a revolver and shot the players. The coach sat helplessly in the back while the assailants dragged out the players' bodies and dumped them in the road. The dead men were wearing green sports jerseys emblazoned with the word Iraq. An Iraqi National Guard checkpoint It was about 100 meters from the side of the ambush, but the soldiers did nothing, according to witnesses. They added gunmen had used the same car in the past two months during attacks on others. Uh, In addition, men are forbidden from wearing goatee beards, and anyone is forbidden from buying mayonnaise, according to a leaflet that has been spread around the neighborhood by radicals. The leaflet threatens violators with death. Death for mayonnaise. Are these gourmet Taliban? Guess you have to make your own mayonnaise in the new Iraq. How about the new Afghanistan? The Taliban are not the only enemy facing the seventy sorry, the seven thousand strong force of NATO troops now in Afghanistan. Four years and billions of, of dollars later, according to the British newspaper The Guardian, the Afghan government and its Western backers have failed to draw the southern provinces the South. It's the South. In all these countries, it's the South. It's just like this country. It's the South. It's the South, ladies and gentlemen. Wherever you go, it's the South, except in Australia, where it's the North. Have failed to draw the southern provinces into the central government. Now they are hemorrhaging support rapidly. The difficult state of central authority is most evident in Helmand province. The police are corrupt, government departments defunct, and despite years of disarmament, guns are everywhere. The Taliban rule the night. Sounds like a good poster. 
The central government is all but invisible. The new Afghanistan. And, and meanwhile, what's happening in Iran? I'll tell you what's happening in Iran. Iran closed the newspaper and detained its chief editor and cartoonist this week for publishing a cartoon that sparked riots by ethnic Azeris, the first such move since President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad came to power last year. Cartoons make trouble all over the world. The response was a sign of the hardline government's concern over any internal divisions amid its confrontation with the United States and suggested there were worries the United States might, may try to stir up trouble. Who? Us? among Iran's ethnic minorities. Might it even be a U.S.-spawned cartoon? Let's read further. The indefinite closure of the state-run newspaper, Iran, came after it published a cartoon of a cockroach speaking Azeri, the language of Iran's largest ethnic minority. I guess they don't like cockroaches there either. Iranian officials quickly apologized for the slur. Oh, it's an apology. Didn't make, the, didn't make the cut, and stressed the nation's unity in the standoff with Washington. It is clear that the evil hands of foreigners are making efforts to promote or to provoke, provoke tribal, ethnic, and religious differences under the present circumstances, said pa- state public prosecutor Gorban Ali Dori Najafabadi. Our nation is vigilant, he added, and hates the United States. Okay, as long as that's clear. Hundreds of Azeris marched in the northwestern city of Tabriz protesting against the cartoon. Some broke windows of the governor's office. Police used tear gas to disperse the demonstrators. Azeris are a Turkic ethnic group. They make up about a quarter of Iran's 70 million people. Azeris speak a Turkic language shared by their brethren in neighboring Azerbaijan. They were angered by the cartoon that suggested Azeris are stupid. It showed people from different walks of life, including an athlete and a tradesman, trying to teach the cockroach, and he always answers in Azeri, what do you mean? <laughs> that's, that's pretty good, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pretty damn good cartoon. I know. <clears throat> we had Polish jokes, you know. Everybody's got to find Everybody's got to think somebody's stupid, don't you think? Shouldn't there be just a, a worldwide agreement that people just stop bitching about it? Because it's clearly a deep-seated human need to have somebody in the immediate vicinity that uh, even the stupidest among us, and by us I mean, you know, us, people who run the place, can view as stupid. And in Iran, it's the Azeris, I guess. There was no explanation why the protests broke out more than a week after the cartoon appeared. Well, (laughs) it took them that long to get it? No, I'm kidding. See, that's the kind of joke that would get Azeris demonstrating. The Iranian culture minister, speaking on television, apologized for the drawing. But the Azeri legis- one Azeri legislature, a legislator said the apology came at least one week too late. Well, it, so did the demonstrate. <laughs> News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen. It is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. And I really do mean that because uh, I'm fully aware that 40 minutes to an hour a day is a hell of a lot of show to uh, to try to absorb, uh, on, you know, five days a week, well, most weeks anyways. And, uh, and so I, I really do try to remember to thank you for listening 
after every episode because you know if if you've heard me each time then you're really dedicated to this show and and you know i i love all of you for listening to as much as you listen to but you know for those of you who actually listen every day man you guys especially are the ones who keep me going because uh you know i could easily cut back and you know not ha- not have to work so hard and that would be nice but you know i i in all honesty i i don't mind doing it i i like doing it but that being said i it has been brought to my attention very recently and i mean i knew it already but i just got firsthand knowledge that there are some of you probably plenty of you who don't listen to every episode or, or maybe not all of every episode you know whatever whatever it breaks down to and so I've decided today and for the rest of this week, if I don't forget, to advertise myself. And the reason I'm doing that is because I think that Friday's show this week is one of the best shows that I've, I've ever done. You know, and, and believe me, I've... I've had some good ones, and I know the difference between a good show and a great show, and the rare, not so great show. Um, you know, I've had I had the the Courage of Youth show, which I got, you know, a a huge amount of response on, which was fantastic. And by a huge amount of response, I mean some response because it's the only show that's ever gotten any response for it specifically. And I've had some other shows about religion that I'm was particularly proud of or you know there there are some here and there that really stick out in my mind as as ones that I'm really proud of. But this one coming out on Friday, it's about the media. And this this weekend as I was editing out my clips, oh, I just started salivating as I was gathering them up. And, uh, you know, all these clips about the media, and I thought, oh, this is going to make a great show. Oh, I can't wait. And then, finally, I got them all compiled together, and I said, yep, that's badass. This, you know, that's going to be good stuff. So, you know, maybe it's not the, the most informative show that I've ever had. Maybe it's not, you know, it's not a lot of things, but... What it is, I think, is um, something not to be missed. So that's coming out on Friday. I'm going to be reminding you, just in case you're planning on skipping an episode uh, here and there, I would just, I would hate for you to miss that one. Uh, it's, uh, it's going to speak for itself when it comes out, and you're not going to be disappointed, I don't think. Um, what? No, that's ridiculous. Some of you are going to be disappointed because you all like different aspects of the show. Um, but if you think exactly the way I do, then you won't be disappointed, put it that way. Uh, the title, I have not uh, come to a final conclusion on yet. Uh, I usually don't name the shows until about three seconds before I upload them. But it's, you know, something along the lines of, you know... Oh, media, where art thou? Or, uh, you know, something clever like that, because, you know, I, I like to be clever. 
when I can, because I, I, this, this show doesn't give me much room to uh, stretch my creative legs, as it were. So, uh, so I, I put a lot of effort into those titles. Uh, so just keep an eye out for that. That's, uh, I've probably, I, it's ridiculous. When I start talking about something that I'm excited about, I, you know, I, I, I look down and five minutes has gone by and, and I realize that I haven't even said anything particularly useful, but whatever. On to other issues. Uh, no, I forget it. Uh, the, the other issues can wait for another day. I will just remind you to go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com just to look around, nothing in particular. Uh, you can check out the support the show section. It's all pretty self-explanatory. You can come and join me on my wrapper map, which I love. Uh, MySpace as well. When you when you come to MySpace, go ahead and bring a friend. You know, Come be my friend and then tell all of your friends that you just became my friend and that they should check me out, and if they click on my page, they'll get to hear my promo and get all excited, and they'll find a new podcast to fall in love with, So that because that's the whole point of that whole networking thing, right? There's other stuff to do, you can check that all out, and, uh, and send me emails from there. You can either send it directly to hippiesympathizer at gmail.com, or there's a link right there on the page somewhere i don't remember where i put it but you'll you'll get the idea so that'll just about do it for today no that will entirely do it for today have a good one everybody this podcast is a member of the progressive podcast network if you like what you hear go on over to newmediarevolution.org where you'll find other like-minded podcasts and soon blogs and vlogs Progressive Podcast Network at NewMediaRevolution.org. Variety is the spice of life.